Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. It's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter. My name is Cameron Riley. Uh, Ray Harris, my normal partner in crime, not with me today because I'm doing another UK interview and it's always just too hard to get the time zones right. My guest today is Alan McLeod. Alan's uh, an academic in Scotland. Uh, he, well, the, the story is, uh, for the last, I don't know, three or four months, whenever I've been researching a story on media bias, whether it's uh, American politics or uh, Russia Gate, you know, that kind of thing, or if it's something to do with Latin America, Venezuela, Bolivia, I, I will always find myself uh, reading an article at some point in my research, and I'll get to the bottom of the article and I go, wow, that was great. That was perfect. I wonder who wrote that. I should follow them on Twitter. And I look at the byline and it's Alan McLeod. I first heard about Alan, I think, on a podcast, uh, uh, I don't know, six months ago, ended up reading a couple of his books, including one that I talked about on this show a few months ago, uh, he did an updated book about Chomsky and Herman's propaganda model, and he interviewed Chomsky about it, etc. Anyway, we tried to get him on the show a few months ago. Did, didn't work out. I think there was something he forgot or his diary didn't remind him or something like that. Anyway, managed to get him back on this week, and uh, we're talking, among other things, about Bolivia and Venezuela and Jeremy Corbyn just uh, and the propaganda model. It's a great interview, terrific chat. Uh, uh, Scott Berbikachov is trying to uh, text me here. That's the ding. There's also a bit of a noise in the background with this interview with Alan, and we figured out half an hour into it that it was his oven in the background making a weird noise, so uh, apologies for that. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy this with uh, Alan McLeod. I'm a big admirer of the work that you're doing. So I thought, you know, uh, a few months ago when... I was trying to get you on. It was to talk about the Propaganda Model book, which was terrific. And um, I think I may have mentioned at the time, I I, I had, I, <laughs> I uh, broke Noam Chomsky's uh, podcast virginity uh, circa 2006 or seven or something. So I thought of having you on as a sort of an update to that. And I wanted to talk to you about Venezuela with all everything that's been going on there. Now we have Bolivia to talk about. So maybe yeah. we can find a way to bring all of those things uh, together. But before we do that, can you can you give uh, the audience a little bit of background on yourself? I I read that you um, you write in a lot of places. You are or were affiliated with something called the Glasgow University Media Group. Is that still correct? Yeah, that's right. So I uh, graduated, I finished my PhD in 2017 at the Glasgow Media Group. Um, I'm a staff writer at Mint Press News, and I also contribute to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Salon, The Guardian, lots of places. Um, yeah, my speciality uh, is really looking at uh, the media itself. I wrote a book about fake news, 
study propaganda. And I really think it's very important for the entire population to really think about what they're reading and not just uh, consume uh, what they read or what they see on television without really thinking about the biases and uh, the attitudes behind it. Mm. And uh, when did you first find yourself getting interested in how the media works? Oh, boy, I think I've been interested since day one, really. But um, definitely when I read uh, Chomsky's uh, book, Manufacturing Consent, and saw the documentary online, that was really a big turning point where I thought, suddenly, all this stuff is starting to make sense, you know? Mm, mm. For years, I've been watching uh, the media and thinking, why aren't they reporting on this? Why is this always uh, why is this always uh, the top uh, story uh, in the bulletin? I don't mm. really understand why they're ignoring this thing, and why are they using these words? And it was like a, a foreign language I was listening to. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when I, when I found uh, that book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, it started to make a lot more sense, and that opened up an entire... Uh, avenue of line of thinking and politics and social science and uh and history and economics and everything really Mm. yeah and how did you come across that in the first place i mean it's i find a lot of people have heard of the book but not a lot of people i come across have actually read it oh i think i just totally stumbled upon it um by accident on the internet just looking at a few links actually and then uh uh, finding maybe a video where Chomsky was being interviewed or, or said something about uh, current events. Yeah. Right. And, uh, yeah, that was obviously by Chomsky and Ed Herman, uh, who has since passed away. Have you read the book that inspired them by the Australian author? Oh, uh, Alex Carey, you mean? Yes. Yeah, what was it called? Taking the... Um... I'll tell you in a second. Uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, taking the risk out of democracy. Taking the risk out of democracy. Yeah, Alex, his main uh, thesis is that the 20th century was uh, filled with some really important events. One was the growth of democracy. One was the growth of corporations. And one was the growth of uh, marketing, PR and propaganda to prevent, mm-hmm. to protect corporations from the threat of democracy. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the book was about. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, groundbreaking book. And um, he, unfortunately, he passed away quite young, I believe, uh, from memory. That's right, yeah. Mm. But uh, Herman and Chomsky have made it to a ripe old age, and uh, Chomsky's still going, uh, writing, giving speeches, even uh, teaching at university. I think he's 90 now, and he's still going. Yeah, he was old when I interviewed him. And I remember the day before I interviewed him, he was um, declared the world's leading intellectual by some magazine or some paper somewhere. And I thought, well, shit, that's not not adding any pressure. Or now I need to interview the world's world's leading intellectual. Yeah, what a scoop. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I just broke out in hives. That was my approach to it. <laughs> I think it was like three o'clock in the morning my time too. So that was a lot of fun. Anyway, so let's let's um, start with the propaganda model. Like the listeners to this show 
have heard me uh, going on and on about this for years and they, they get sick of me talking about it. Uh, it would be good to hear somebody other than me and somebody far more educated than me uh, explain it. So in a nutshell, I know this is a big ask, but in, in a nutshell, can you try and explain the propaganda model and, and how it works? Yeah, no worries. Um, so a lot of us have a quite an outdated idea about how the media works. We think of the media as uh, plucky underdogs with pencils and a printing press standing up for the little guy and taking on power. But in fact, what we've seen over the last 40, 50 years is that in fact, media now are not just uh, uh, cheerleaders of big corporations, they are massive corporations themselves. They're multi-billion dollar international uh, organizations that have their own agendas, their own interests, and uh, their own biases. And so the large majority of what we read, see, or hear in terms of media is actually coming through these enormous corporations. And uh, Herman and Chomsky talked about what uh, all of these things that could potentially be news that are out there, tens of thousands of stories, how does the media decide what we see? And they uh, created this idea of a propaganda model, which is like a machine that filters out all of these news stories and just leaves us with the, uh, the process things that they want us to see. And so they have five filters. One of them is the ownership that I've talked about already. Another one is uh, reliance on big uh, business for uh, funding in the terms of advertising. Big business does not want to see certain stories being uh, put out there. It also does not want people to be put in a more critical frame of mind because that takes them out of the buying frame of mind, meaning that uh, if you encourage people to start really questioning what they're reading, uh, studies have shown that uh, they are much less susceptible to the advertising message that comes afterwards. Um, the third one is sources. We have to rely on uh, very important people to essentially fund us or subsidize us as journalists with stories, quotes, statistics, photographs, you name it. And uh, if we report the news in a way that uh, uh, angers them or is not conducive to their interests, they will cut us off. And that is a, a huge drawback for a journalist to not be able to speak to, say, an important person, the president or something. The fourth is flack. We're from powerful organizations, which is organized pushback against uh, what you write. So if you, for instance, uh, badmouth uh, a single mother who doesn't have any uh, uh, you know, lawyers or anything, you're probably not going to get much pushback from that. But if you write a factual story critiquing a government or a big corporation or something, the lawyers could get involved, they could start a PR campaign against you. And so you really have to think twice about what you're writing. And then finally, they talked about a sort of all-pervasive anti-communist bias. This was in the 80s during the Cold War. But uh, we have seen this idea start to return about this sort of anti-Russian bias where people are talking about, you know, if you say something like this, maybe you're a Russian plant with lots of accusations going around about that. So people are always uh, very careful to to sort of uh, wave their national flag and make sure they're, they're not seen as subversive or, or dangerous in any way. Mm. And so... And another thing I'll just add is also very important is the pre-selection of journalists. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, it's very hard to get into journalism. Generally, you have to do 
maybe six months internship in New York or London or a big city where you don't get paid. And how many people can actually afford to live uh, without an income in these big cities? Not many. Also, you're now expected to go to prestigious journalism schools, which often cost tens of thousands of dollars to attend. This really filters out people from a modest socioeconomic background. It means that journalists tend to come from, when I say journalists, I mean the big journalists, you know, the big organizations like CNN, not local journalists. They tend to come from a very distinct class. And that group of people sees the world in a certain way and, uh, uh, rehashes that in their stories. And you can see that coming through. And if somebody from the wrong background or wrong political framework manages to somehow get through those filters and get a job, quite soon they, they learn that there are certain kinds of stories or certain kinds of perspectives on stories that are acceptable and certain stories or perspectives on stories that are not acceptable and you're going to struggle if you want to keep writing those sorts of stories, it's not going to be good for your career. And uh, they, those people tend to either filter themselves out. Eventually they go, screw this. This is too hard. I'm going to go do something else. Or they get filtered out by the system. They get managed out as being troublemakers or people that aren't team players or whatever it is. I was listening to uh, Matt Taibbi's podcast just over the weekend, his latest one whatever that is, useful idiots, I think. And he had Max Blumenthal on, and they, two guys who are journalists, were, uh, and their co-host is a lady who I can't remember her name, but also a journalist. They were, they, they were talking about this very um, process in their experience as journalists where you just learn very early on in your career, don't, don't, don't try and talk about that, don't try and write about this story, it's, it's uh, not going to get up. Exactly. I mean, that was Casey Halper you're talking about. That's um, her. You generally, you're not going to literally be told to do not write about this by your editor. But what happens is you pitch stories and you notice that certain ones are not getting accepted. And, you know, maybe they'll even publish something that is really critical or, you know, steps on these red lines. But the fact of the matter is, is that when your contract comes up for a renewal, you're probably not going to get one or you're not going to be uh, uh, employed again. And so these people tend to get filtered out, whereas People who uh, um, please their editors and their owners by writing a certain kind of story will be promoted, will get the uh, the new deal, will be allowed, you know, to present their own television show, and that's what happens when people say, you know, nobody ever tells me what to say. I've got here on my own merits on hard work, mm -hmm. and it's true. Most of these people uh, are never really filtered or censored in a way. But the, pro the, the real problem is, is that if they believed anything else, they wouldn't be in the position where that they are today because they've only been allowed to rise up this system because they hold these uh, ideas so true to their hearts. Mm. I was reading again today, uh, it's a term that I often forget, but the Overton window is another way of explaining what this window of sort of acceptable discourse is. You familiar with the Overton window, I'm sure? Yes, I am. That's right. Can you explain that to the listeners? So, I mean, I suppose the Overton window is the range of acceptable or uh, marketable uh, positions on any issue. 
we talk about, for instance, Donald Trump moving the Overton window to the right on things like immigration or race, where now it seems like it's much more acceptable to talk in opal, open racial language, for instance. So Trump has moved the Overton window to the right, whereas Sanders, for instance, is trying to move the Overton window to the left to pull the discussion uh, on things like Medicare, on things like inequality or the minimum wage. He's trying to pull the Overton window to the left and expose the public to ideas about, uh, say, a nationalized <clears throat> healthcare system or a $15 minimum wage. And yeah, it's a very powerful idea that uh, you know there are a certain range of possibilities that the public are exposed to in the media. And uh, if you really want to push a society in a certain direction, you really have to pull that window uh, to your position and expose people to these ideas. Because if in the United States in particular, but <clears throat> to a lesser extent in most of the Western world, for the last century, uh, talking, trying to have a reasonable conversation about socialism uh, has been next to impossible without being branded as some sort of crazy revolutionary. Uh, in One of the other shows that my uh, partner and I do is on the Cold War. We, we've done many, many hours exploring and explaining the uh, corporate backlash against FDR and the New Deal through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and how they uh, figured out how to associate anything that was even slightly, anything that slightly involved unions or regulation with uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the, the evils of communism. So it got to a point where people just get too scared to talk about it. And I find this on Facebook, and I'm sure you do too on social media. I've been posting stories about the coup in Bolivia. We just did a series of podcasts about it and the, the long and turbulent political history of Bolivia. And just these, these friends of mine, Americans, who think of themselves as progressive Democrats, just coming back with this list of CIA uh, talking points, trying to shut down any conversation around what just happened in Bolivia. They're not part of the media. Uh, they, but they've they've been it's like they've been trained that there are certain things that are uh, acceptable discourse and certain things that just need to be shut down with no sense of uh, rational fact based thinking. They they never come back with facts or evidence or, or analysis on the, the the situation. It's just like the the, the uh, one friend of mine who I used to do a podcast with talking about uh, Morales, and it wasn't even on my uh, Facebook, it was on a friend's thread. He said, well, he just uh, basically uh, shit all over the Constitution. Isn't the Constitution important? Don't you care about constitutions? And, <laughs> and, and, and I was trying to explain, well, first of all, Eber Morales passed the Constitution and, and when he, in 2009, and when he did, it was the 17th Constitution the country had had in about... 100 years. So the constitution is pretty much in flux in a place like Bolivia. And to, and to make changes with regarding their term limits was something we should talk about. You know, he went to the constitutional court when the referendum barely failed. He went to the constitutional court that approved it. So 
he didn't just shit all over the Constitution. He went through a legal process. Now, we can have a conversation about whether or not term limits are a good thing or a bad thing, and we can discuss the long history of violent right-wing CIA-sponsored military dictatorships in Bolivia, and we can weigh up whether or not a guy like Iba Morales trying to extend the term limits is, is a reasonable thing or not, and we can talk about the facts, but they, they don't go there. It's just... It's just this, uh, he's shit all over the Constitution. Uh, how dare you not love the Constitution? Anyway, I'm ranting. Do, do, you, <laughs> do you find, sorry, this is why I get excited, Alan. Do you find that it's uh, this kind of Overton window is also made its way into acceptable discourse just uh, online? Yes, I think so. I mean, a lot of the left-wing governments in Latin America, for instance, Evo Morales in Bolivia, Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, or Rafael Correa in Ecuador, were demonized totally by the uh, Western press, uh, described as, you know, dictators or tyrants who were trampling over constitutional rights and uh, democracy, when in fact, what they were doing was actually increasing democracy by challenging the ideas of the constitution and saying we have to go much deeper and look at a more people's inclusive democracy. And so with Morales, for instance, he managed to reduce poverty by 42% while in office and, ex and extreme poverty by 60%. He cut unemployment in half and uh, conducted all manner of public works programs, starting up a nationalized healthcare system, for instance, from scratch. And he also managed to get millions more Bolivians involved in politics. And these were generally the indigenous Bolivians who had been trampled on for hundreds of years and made to feel like second-class citizens at best and subhumans at worst. But what we find in the media is, is that uh, there is a pretty much unanimous uh, agreement among left and right uh, corporate media, so you know CNN, the BBC, the New York Times, etc., are all presenting Morales as ouster in a military coup where the generals went on television and demanded he resign before his term was up. They are all talking about this as being a resignation and rarely even describe or mention that the fact that the military was involved. And then they go on to say, oh yes, well, Morales stepped on the constitution, etc. And I think it's totally legitimate to have a discussion about Morales' failures or perhaps the fact that uh, the people of Bolivia narrowly voted to uh, uphold term limits, but then the Supreme Court, uh, after Morales asked them to, decided that that was actually an infringement on the constitution and said that anyone can run for any office at any time. Um, personally, maybe I think uh, term limits are a good idea, but frankly, the fact that Morales got to run again does not prove that he's a dictator, firstly, because he still had to win the election, which he did convincingly. He got 47% of the vote. And he was so far ahead of his rivals that that was enough to um, ensure that he won the vote without a runoff election, which is very common in Latin America, where they put the two uh, highest uh, vote-getting candidates together against each other to decide who's the president. And yet uh, the military decided to select Janine Añez a strongly conservative Christian politician whose uh, party achieved only 4% of the vote in October as uh, the new 
uh, leader of Bolivia. And the media is just deciding that, uh, yeah, she is the constitutional uh, ruler of Bolivia, everything's fine. And they're ignoring the fact that she has given the military a carte blanche to massacre any civilians, any uh, resistance to the rule. They're ignoring her past uh, of really remarkable racist uh, comments she's made. She described the indigenous majority of Bolivia, which make up, by some estimates, 85% of the country. Uh, she described them as satanic, and she arrived at the uh, presidential palace holding an oversized Bible, saying that Christianity was going to return to Bolivia after years of having a satanic president. Evo Morales was, of course, the first indigenous president of Bolivia in 500 years since the time of Columbus. And that really marked a sea change for a lot of the elite in Bolivia who felt personally attacked and personally threatened by not having one of them in power. And so what we've seen with the media is, is that they've essentially whitewashed all the violence that's going on in Bolivia as this new coup government tries to stamp out any... Um, any resistance to its rule. And even the discourse online we've seen is that a lot of people seem to have just accepted whatever the media or the US government has told them about the situation without looking deeper. And you really have to go to really quite niche alternative news sites to find a differing opinion. I have to go to you, usually. <laughs> to get some analysis. Uh, just a production note, Alan, is uh, somebody scratching on your desk there? Do you have a dog or uh, a pen? Uh, yes, I've got a uh, It's the sound of uh, the oven. I can go next door if you like. That might make it a little bit better. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oven. Yeah. Making a scratching a, noise. Yes, I, I can just uh, see If you give me five seconds, I'll see if I can turn it off. Okay. Ah, there we go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> yeah. I what? just turned it off at the wall and suddenly it stops making this clicking noise. What kind of oven makes a noise like that? Yeah. A, a one that's not working well, I think. That's, <laughs> that's good. Thanks. Um, I thought you were just doodling with a pen on your desk near the mic. No. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like it, I do find that a lot. And uh, whenever. I try and have a, a reasonable conversation, particularly with American friends. There's a few, I get it from a few Australians and a few people in your side of the world, but it's mostly Americans. Um, they just want to accuse me of being anti-American. Anything that suggests that uh, America may not be a land made of bubblegum and fairy floss where unicorns uh, dance on rainbows and that it might be quite similar to every other empire the world has ever known where it does some good things and it does some bad things and we have to look at both. You, I just get uh, called anti-American as a result. You ever get that? Uh, sometimes, yeah. It's, it's remarkable that, they, that Americans themselves will criticize every aspect of their country, every politician, uh, all the states together. And yet, very often when outsiders start talking about uh, America or really start threatening the uh, the sort of, as you said, the American empire, suddenly that's anti-American. Um, as many people have pointed out, that this idea is quite a totalitarian concept. I mean, 
if you were to say, oh, you're being anti-New Zealand, you'd be like, what? I know I'm not. This is, it's, I don't think many Kiwis would talk about being, you know, anti-New Zealand like that. If you were to criticize Jacinta Arden or, you know, whoever. Come um, on, who can criticize her? She is <laughs> the queen of the world right now. We all love if her. You were to, if you were to criticize her, I doubt many Kiwis would uh, <laughs> talk about how you having an anti-New Zealand bias and being fundamentally anti-New Zealand. It's actually quite a totalitarian concept to equate the government with uh, the society or the, the president with the society. I suspect that would only happen in very uh, in uh, you know t dictatorships where you know maybe if you were in a Central Asian Republic and. Uh, criticize the dictator there they might say you're being anti-kazakh you're coming with us to the police station sort of mm. thing mm. well but uh, it's not just the president as um, i'm sure you've seen in the media in the u.s media over the last couple of months uh, you're not even allowed to ask questions about joe biden and hunter biden's involvement in the ukraine during the period 2014 to 2019 uh it's 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 verboten the media has shut down any conversation it's debunked it's uh just uh, even the even the leftist media organizations over there like the intercept don't seem to want to go there Right. I, the problem with uh, so much of America and other countries as well is that we're trapped in this partisan horse race dichotomy where you're on Team Democrat or Team Republican, Team Blue, Team Red, Team Left, Team Right, and you have to support whatever your team is doing. And yet, you know, I think with this impeachment case, it seems pretty clear that Trump did lean on the Ukrainian government to try to dig up dirt on his opponent, which is clearly a violation of uh, norms, and he should be uh, criticized for it. At the same time, I think we can also look at what Joe Biden did as uh, being very suspicious. His son, who has no background in uh, energy policy or Eastern Europe, and don't want to be particularly nasty to him, but it seems like his main qualification is uh, being a crackhead and being the son of the vice president suddenly landed a million-dollar-a-year job on the board of a Ukrainian uh, energy company just at the same time as Joe Biden was negotiating with Ukraine over the Russia deal, over all sorts of uh, things going on there. That seems highly suspicious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't have to jump into one boat or the other. We can look back and just say, well, actually, maybe both sides have some sort of problem here. Yes, but you can't say that without being called a Trump lover by people on the left. People, and I use on the left in inverted commas there because uh, I don't think they really are as progressive as they think they are. But yeah, look, I agree with you. I th and I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's this is one of the things that I got out of the um, uh, Chomsky and Herman book when I first read it several decades ago was I started to realize that I couldn't trust any news outlet or any coverage of any story prima facie, that there were always agendas going on. And sometimes they may be telling the truth. Sometimes they may be lying. Sometimes there may not be an agenda. Sometimes there will be. And I don't know. They're not going to tell me. So I needed to read everything skeptically. 
And that's why with this whole fake news thing that Trump has popularized over the last few years, it struck me as amusing because I've always seen the news as being at least half fake. Uh, this isn't a this isn't a new thing, the fake news. And I don't think it's a it's a relatively new thing in terms of the last couple of decades either. I mean, we know if you go back to the days of Randolph Hearst uh, and the media barons of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, you know, there was a lot of manipulation of the media from the get-go. in my in my new book, I talk about, J.P. Morgan's involvement in uh, leading the United States into World War One. I. I think he bought, from memory, it was 28 newspapers in the lead up to get the United States, because, uh, you know, they, they'd elected Wilson on a platform of neutrality, and then they needed to get involved in the war. And I think Morgan bought 28 newspapers in order to ramp up the uh, war, pro-war propaganda. So this stuff has been going on since the the dawn of Western democracies. It's it's certainly not a new thing. Yeah, fake news always seems to <clears throat> come before uh, an invasion of a country. So you know, if we go back to Iraq and Afghanistan, we remember the WMD scandal where Saddam was you know forty five minutes away from turning London or New York into a mushroom cloud with his weapons of mass destruction. Well, it turns out that that wasn't true, and that was just the pretext for invading Iraq. Uh, if you go back further to the first Gulf War, we, we remember the story about Iraqi soldiers coming into maternity hospitals and stabbing children in incubators with their bayonets. So that turned out that that was actually... Um, uh, the daughter of a, uh, a UAE um, ambassador who came to Congress claiming to be an Iraqi nurse who, was, uh, who saw these things. And that was really one of the catalysts for getting uh, the public and uh, Congress into supporting the first Iraq war. And then, you know, we can go even further back. You know, there was the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam where the United States claimed it had been attacked by the Vietnamese army. Uh, that turns out to be highly suspicious, perhaps uh, did not happen. And so it seems like almost always there are these incidents which uh, uh, precede uh, large military maneuvers, uh, which seem to be organized by the media or at least swallowed by the media whole, uh, whole cloth and then just repeated. And this is really, what I want to get across to a lot of people is that fake news is not just Macedonian teenagers with a blog in their bedroom. Mm. It goes much deeper than that. You know, the, the biggest and most uh, important and costly fake news scandal of the 21st century was the weapons of mass destruction, where, where over a million Iraqis were killed because of that. And that was pushed by the New York Times, by CNN, by the BBC, the biggest and most established and well-respected uh, journalistic outlets in the world. And so, yeah, as much as uh, there are all sorts of ridiculous fake stories going around circulating on social media from these small blogs which intentionally put out uh, fake news in order to try to get clicks or, or push an agenda, we really have to see that uh, big media are doing the same uh, with certain stories. 
Yes, you don't have to admire Donald Trump to agree with him when he says these media organisations push fake news. And I mean, he, he, even more recently, the, the whole Russiagate hysteria that we lived through for several years, and uh, I and, and many others, and I'm sure you as well, were sitting here going, this is a lot of hysteria for something where there seems to be no evidence yet for this collusion narrative. Maybe we should wait until there's some evidence before... Investigate? Sure. But really, does it require the 24 by 7 hysteria day and night uh, while this is going on? Of course, as it turned out, at the end, at least the Mueller investigation couldn't find any direct evidence of direct collusion between anyone at the Kremlin or anyone in Russia and, and the Trump camp. Um, so that whole collusion narrative that the media, people like Rachel Maddow in particular, were so convinced was uh, legitimate and was all going to come out in the wash, kind of fizzled, but we, we had to live through a media storm in the meantime. Yeah, you know, trust in media has been falling since the 1970s across the world, and in particular in the US. And there was a recent poll that uh, showed that 72% of Americans believe that major media outlets publish false or exaggerated stories in order to either push an agenda or to get revenue. Uh, and Russiagate was one of those things where CBS, the executive, was caught on film saying that this is a, a huge boon to uh, to us. That we called it the Trump bump. You know, everybody was tuning in to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Rachel Maddow. There was a study of her <clears throat> her show, um, and it found that she covered Russia more than all other subjects combined across uh, across a two month period. And what that really had the effect of doing was uh, driving liberals and conservatives even more into their own camps to the point where they could barely even talk to each other. And since the Mueller report came out and showed that there was, the bottom line is that they, he couldn't find any collusion and that Trump has taken this for a big victory. The bottom line is what's happened is these uh, so-called resistance uh, liberals in the media have actually handed Donald Trump an enormous shield with which he can use to bat off any media criticism saying, oh, it's all fake news, remember Russiagate. And they've con contributed more than perhaps any other organization or person to the potential re-election of Trump in 2020, which is quite ironic, frankly, given all of that they've been talking about in the last four years. And, and none of that is to say that there shouldn't have been an investigation and that the media couldn't cover that investigation, but it could have been covered in such a in a much more fact based, less hysterical manner. What I was saying for the last few years is, look, it's fine to cover it, but just say, look, there's an investigation. Well, let's see, let's wait and see what they find out. Uh, you know, until then, let's let's just be you know, holding pattern. Let's just stand by, see what happens. Give them time. Let's move on. Let's look at the big issues, like the fact that. Uh, we have rising wealth equality and we're burning the world to a crisp and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're draining the treasury for uh, wars in third world countries. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly, mate. That's a great point. Uh, so much of the Russia coverage, while, you know, it's legitimate, as you said, to devote some time to it, the way in which it was uh, covered was extraordinary. It seemed like every day was the last day for Donald Trump and he was going to be 
taken away in handcuffs. The and walls are closing in. The walls the are weekend. closing in on Donald Trump. Yes, the walls are closing in. I heard that so many times. <laughs> and what s- you said is really important. What you alluded to there was that all the coverage of Russia actually took away time from really important issues that the media should have been covering and could have been hammering Trump if they wanted to be a, a you know a partisan media. They could have been hammering Trump for his complete and utter destruction of the Environmental Protection Agency, his, uh, his, uh, the Muslim ban, which was totally unconstitutional and frankly racist, uh, the enormous uh, tax giveaway he's given to the super rich, which is going to decimate uh, the quality of life for ordinary people, his destruction of the public school system and pushing of charter schools. There are so many things that they could real issues that really affect people's lives that they could have been hammering Trump on, uh, but instead they chose to focus on this sort of uh, Russia chimera, which uh, was very difficult to understand, and there never seemed to be that much evidence about it. It was all a sort of cloak and dagger thriller novel, almost like a he said she said thing. And what it's come out is, is, is it's really dented the credibility of uh, of the media and has somehow managed to improve the credibility of Donald Trump, one of the the, the most openly uh, lying charlatan heads of state that uh, America's ever seen. Well, I think he's in good company. He's just my take on Trump is. He's really no worse than many presidents. In fact, he's probably better than a lot of presidents they've had. He just doesn't bother to hide uh, what he does. He doesn't dress it up. He doesn't. He doesn't play the game. Doesn't do the show because he doesn't care. <laughs> he's like, eh, you know, I'm rich. I mean, I'm not as rich as I pretend I am, but I'm rich enough. Uh, I, I'm not going to have a political career. I'm just going to try and uh, build my brand for my kids. Uh, we'll do deals. We'll leverage this. Doesn't matter what happens. I mean, I, I said to somebody the other, somebody I saw somebody on Facebook the other day say he's the worst president in history. And I said, but Lincoln started an actual civil war where hundreds of thousands of Americans died, and, and that was at a time when hundreds of thousands of Americans was a lot of the population. Get back to me when Trump actually starts a civil war, if you don't mind. I mean, Operation Condor. Under Reagan and the Bush and and going go back to LBJ and uh, Vietnam, and come on, there's a lot of presidents that have done a lot of worse things than Donald Trump has done yet. I mean, he's he's a, an appalling human being, but uh, he hasn't started any major wars. He hasn't uh, that we know of. Uh, he's you know he's he's tried his hand in Syria and he's kept things going in different places and he's ramping up things in Iran and Venezuela and Bolivia etc. But yeah, that's nothing compared to what Reagan or LBJ or you know I can keep going or even George W. Bush or Obama did you know yes you know Obama was uh, uh, fighting seven wars in seven countries simultaneously. George Bush was responsible for the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which are still going on and are so much of the basis for the refugee crisis across the world today. Although that's never really talked about. They never connect America's escapades abroad with the refugee crisis at home. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I I think uh, Donald Trump is an almost completely irredeemable figure. But one Mm. of the good things about him is that he does say the quiet part loud, you know, he says things that uh, other presidents wouldn't and kind of lifts the veil on how things work. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much outrage at Trump mm. is that he's not playing the game 
properly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't smile and talk about democracy as he uh, undermines it in other countries or bombs another country. He'll he'll say the things straight up. You know, we'll take their oil and we'll make them pay for it, sort of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, you know, other heads of state have learned over decades being in the political or diplomatic world that that's not how you speak. Trump says things that are, you know, are, are completely were well, completely true. And he acts in much the same way as most presidents do, but his manner is completely different, and people really don't like that. Yeah, we, I think other presidents do speak like that, but it's usually behind closed doors, and we only find out about it 20, 30, 40 years later when the surviving members of the administration write their memoirs or uh, <laughs> things get released under freedom of information, uh, that kind of thing. We... Uh, yeah, we, we, we don't find out about it until a lot later. And by then, no one cares because no one read books reads books apart from, like, nerds like us. Yeah. Uh, let's talk, let's move from Bolivia briefly to Venezuela. Uh, it's gone a little bit quiet, although, uh, you know, Max Blumenthal's arrest recently has put it back into the uh, headlights a little bit. Uh, you've probably been following it more closely than I have in the last couple of months. What, what's going on with the the Guaido attempted coup down there at the moment since Bolton's gone? Is it oh, are they it's been, still it's been very up? interesting, Cameron, actually. Uh, the last two weeks, uh, last uh, weekend, Guaido, uh, so that was the, what was that, the weekend of about the, seven, the 16th and 17th of uh, November, um, Guaido attempted another coup. Uh, he wanted everybody to go into the public, uh, into the main streets in Caracas and join him on a huge march. We saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the Vice President Mike Pence making public statements saying that the Venezuelan military has to rebel and join Guaido in the streets. Even Donald Trump was tweeting about this. But what happened was Guaido could barely muster any support and the attempt fell completely flat on its face. And so, therefore, we didn't really hear much about it in the mainstream media. Guaido also attempted this week, uh, fresh off a complete disaster last week, he attempted at the weekend, so that's the uh, 23rd and 24th of November, another attempt at a coup, and that one went even worse to the point where he had to uh, appear in his uh, official videos in front of a green screen where they where they put, uh, you know, stock footage of protests and behind him because so, f- uh, so few people could uh, could uh, be mustered to uh, support him. Now that's pretty interesting, considering that Venezuela is still going through an extremely difficult economic time. Um, inflation is still high. It's still difficult to get certain uh, goods, and yet people while they are annoyed at the government for their handling of it, don't seem willing to join this uh, US-backed leadership campaign, a challenge to the military. So people of Venezuela are still going through very difficult times, but uh, they seem to uh, have decided that uh, sticking with the government is a better idea than uh, rolling the dice with uh, Juan Guaido. So what's your take on Venezuela in the last few years? Uh, we, you know, we hear lots of different, um, I use analysis in air quotes, around Maduro's administration since the death of Chavez. 
Um, obviously, economically, they're doing a tough time. It's, they're doing it tough, uh, partly, as I understand, as a result of the, the oil price. Um, partly, uh, they've been in government a long time, the Chavismos down there. We hear lots of stories about Maduro and corruption coming from the US media. You've, you've, you've written a book on Venezuela. What's your take on the Maduro administration in the last few years and how much responsibility they have for the economic situation down there? Yeah, great question. So between 1998 and 2013, the president was Hugo Chavez, and he managed to um, uh, do some quite remarkable things in his time in office. Uh, while he na renationalized the oil industry, he used that uh, profit from that to fund huge social programs, which uh, meant that poverty was reduced by 50% and extreme poverty by three quarters. Uh, Venezuela was declared illiteracy free after a huge uh, literacy drive. They uh, created a national health service out of almost nothing. Uh, huge numbers of uh, Venezuelans became more interested in politics and became yeah, politically conscious and started to vote. So we have enormous turnout for, for elections, 80 plus percent usually, which is far higher than in most countries. Um, but uh, after Chavez died, Nicolas Maduro took over, and unfortunately, he took over in very different economic circumstances. Um, generally, at Venezuela's crisis, there are four main factors that contribute to this perfect storm that's going on that, that social scientists, econo economists, or historians point to. Um, let's go through them one by one. One of them is the government. Um, so Maduro has come to power, he has not really got the same charisma or the same ability to unite all the factions in his coalition as Chavez does. And so the government has really been racked by a lot of stasis. So even when left-wing sympathetic economists from the Union of South American Nations presented Maduro with a plan that said you had to stabilize the uh, the economy, you had to float uh, the currency on the stock exchange to try to uh, deal with inflation. He couldn't really pass any motions. And so we've let, we've got to the point where there really is a sort of astonishing lack of uh, will or, or um, impetus from the government to actually deal with these problems just because there are so many competing factions they can't push anything through. Of course, Another thing we that we should hear about but don't is the role of the opposition in all of this. So the opposition who constitute uh, not only a political opposition but an economic, social and media opposition in the country have been conducting an economic war against the government for the last, uh, what, six years now at least. In the uh, talks, the peace talks of the Vatican in 2016, the opposition formally accepted that they had been uh, carrying out an economic war and promised that they would stop doing this. Uh, they haven't stopped doing it. Um, just as an example, uh, the staple of Venezuela is uh, arepa, cornbread, and corn flour, uh, more than 50% of the production and um, uh, distribution of corn flour is uh, held by one company in Presas Polar. Now, the president of Empresas Polar decided that he was going to run against Maduro as the presidential candidate for the opposition in the last election before actually pulling out. But that should show you the sort of power that 
small, uh, just small individuals, uh, small numbers of individuals have in Venezuela to disrupt the economy. And then another one is the role of the US, which again is not really talked about very much. But the sanctions have killed an estimated 40,000 people, uh, according to a US-based uh, e economic team that uh, studied this. And that was between 2017 and 2018 alone. Um, the United States has blocked uh, urgent medical supplies for being uh, sent to Venezuela. So people who, for instance, are on dialysis, mach dialysis machines just uh, have been dying en masse. People who are uh, diabetic can't get insulin and are, have been dying in large numbers as well. Um, these uh, sanctions have been declared illegal by the, by the United Nations, who called on all member states to block them and uh, even started discussing the reparations the US should pay to Venezuela. One American uh, UN special rapporteur visited Venezuela and declared Trump's sanctions as akin to a medieval siege and declared the US as guilty of crimes against humanity. And I've been looking and that, uh, that report by the American UN rapporteur has not been um, discussed or even referenced in any national American media outlet. And that was published more than a year ago now. And finally, the last one, as you pointed out, was the oil price. Um, in 2008, oil prices were really rising high at about $140 a barrel. And that meant that the Chavez administration did have a lot of money to spend on social programs with which they could increase the quality of life. However, by the time Chavez died and Nicolas Maduro took over, I think at 2016, uh, oil prices were only about $40 a barrel. And when you rely on oil for 90 plus percent of your export income, that's an enormous uh, difficulty if you're trying to plan an economy where the next year you get only 25% of the income than uh, you had in the year previously. I mean, if you try to imagine, you know, trying to do a household budget where, you know, the next week you only get a quarter of what you got last week, it's, it's, it's an absolute nightmare to try to plan and control an economy like that. So there's really a lot of factors that go into this perfect storm of why Venezuela's economy is so poor. But uh, generally in the media, we'll only hear one uh, discussion, one of these uh, topics being brought up, and that is government corruption and the inherent uh, uh, flaws of socialism. And we don't hear about the US role, we don't hear about the Venezuelan opposition role, and we don't really hear about the global oil prices, which, uh, which uh, Venezuela and other Latin American countries are really subject to. And if you bring those things up, in my experience, people say, oh, well, the, the socialists mismanaged the economy when the oil price was high. They should have diversified and invested and da 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 When the US single-handedly collapsed the global economy in 2008, well, that was just uh, unfortunate. You know, it's, uh, you, you can't, <laughs> you, you can't <laughs> point fingers then. But if a socialist does it, it's uh, about the inherent flaws and the crookedness of these socialist politicians. When the capitalists do it, well, that was just, that's just cycles, economic cycles, bad luck, you know? Yeah, um, and I, I like your point about uh, how the, the US involvement and the sanctions don't get talked about. You said 
the UN's declared these economic sanctions illegal. My understanding is that, according to the United Nations, economic sanctions are illegal full stop unless approved by the UN Security Council because they're a form of economic warfare. I've explained to my listeners on this and other shows over the years, sanctions are economic warfare. They're a form of warfare. You just don't have boots on the ground. You're trying to kill people. At at the very least, you're trying to destroy an economy. You're trying to destroy a society. And if you're the world's leading, well, second largest economy now after China, you have an enormous power to disrupt another country's economy when they don't do what you want. So, but that again, mm-hmm. that doesn't get talked about in polite society. It's not within the Overton window talking about the illegality of economic sanctions because all US administrations do it, going at least back to Kennedy and his economic sanctions against Cuba. Yeah, 100%. Another <clears throat> hidden uh, cost of the sanctions is, of course, that if the United States is conducting a blockade against, say, Venezuela, it also sanctions any companies that might trade with Venezuela that are foreign. So, for instance, we've seen many, many foreign companies from Europe to Africa or Oceania or even other Latin American companies pulling out of Venezuela because they're afraid of the uh, consequences uh, or the backlash from the U.S. government. And, you know, we were talking about Trump hasn't done very much, but one thing he really has done is ramp up sanctions. The Trump administration seems to really like this tactic. They're now putting sanctions that are costing so many lives in Iran, for instance. They're also heightening sanctions against Russia and North Korea. And these, uh, as you said, it's a form of economic warfare, even though there aren't boots on the ground, people are still dying. And this is just not talked about in the media very much. When they are, very often it's actually applauded. There was a article um, that came out, uh, I think it was the 23rd of November on Saturday, an opinion piece in the New York Times that said, you know, our well-meaning sanctions on Venezuela might be having a negative effect. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that's really the furthest that we can go in terms of criticizing the sanctions. You know, of course, we're meaning well by, you know, uh, you know, uh, stopping insulin getting into the country. But, uh, you know, maybe it's not having the effect that we actually wanted. Some people are dying because of it. That's, that's, as, that's as far as we can get with criticism of the uh, administration on that. And as I've, uh, I've been saying recently, uh, when you're looking at the Democratic primary and the candidates, one, one thing I've encouraged my American listeners to do is look at their position on coups, regime change in Latin America and economic sanctions to tell whether or not these people are really uh, progressive or whether or not they're just pretending to be progressive. How much in the pocket of the military, industrial, congressional, psychopathic complex they are. For example, uh, I believe uh, Elizabeth Warren is uh, fairly supportive of uh, what's going on in Bolivia and Venezuela she does temper a little bit. I think she says if, if we're going to do sanctions, we need to balance it up with some sort of compassion. We need to make mm. sure that there are medical supplies getting in or we're getting in food or et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas Bernie Sanders has out, you know, very been outspoken saying, no, economic sanctions are not okay. We cannot do economic sanctions. They're a, they're a form of oppression. Uh, so I, th- I think that's a very big difference between those two candidates. 
What do you? Well, well, I've got you here. Uh, I had a number of listeners asking me to do a, a show on Jeremy Corbyn. I haven't paid much attention over the years to British politics. Well, we did some shows on Boris when he got the job, just because I was fascinated. But um, in the in the last few minutes, can you give me a bit of a sense on Jeremy Corbyn and and the way he is being uh, attacked by the media over there, and whether or not there's justification for that or it's a similar sort of uh, attack the left uh, by the corporate media and the elite uh, strategy? Yeah, sure. So Corbyn <clears throat> represents a really strongly left-wing challenger to the Conservative Party who've been in power for, uh, geez, uh, nearly 10 years now here. Uh, Corbyn is really to the left of Sanders on pretty much every economic and political issue. Uh, he's recently released his uh, manifesto. Uh, one of the uh, the main things is that he plans to essentially nationalize the railways, the water, uh, and many public utilities. Uh, another one of his policies is to uh, provide everybody in the country with free and super fast broadband. Uh, this policy is very, very uh, popular with the electorate. But it's been described as broadband communism by uh, most of the outlets. Even the BBC was using that uh, term. And this really feeds into a pattern of relentless attack that Corbyn has been under for, for, uh, for years now, as soon as he assumes the leadership of the Labour Party, which was a huge shock to everybody in the UK and not least the media. We've seen Corbyn being attacked as an IRA sympathiser, a terrorist. Uh, a crazy Robert Mugabe supporter, somebody Anti who wants... Anti-Semite, some... he gets a lot. Yes, yes, the anti-Semitism one has been raging for the last year. Uh, it's very difficult to actually pin down what this is based on. It seems that there were a couple of uh, photos of Corbyn at a sort of leftist gathering where there were murals that were saying, oh, you know, bankers, we should get rid of them, they control everything which some people have argued might have been slightly, you know, anti-Semitic, how sometimes the rhetoric of uh, bankers control everything sort of pushes into the sort of, oh, the Rothschilds control everything and they're Jewish. But Corbyn himself has been a lifelong anti-racist. He, in fact, was arrested in the 1980s as well, while he was a member of parliament for protesting against the apartheid administration of South Africa, which the Conservative Party was supporting. And yet Corbyn has now been tarred and feathered relentlessly across uh, you know, the mainstream spectrum as an anti-Semite to the point where many people actually, in opinion polls, do seem to believe there's something there. But generally, uh, they can't really put their finger on it. So my supervisor has just written a book about this called uh, Bad News for the Labour Party. And he got some focus groups together and asked them how many what percentage of Labour Party members have been sanctioned for anti-Semitism? And the average guess from the members of the public was 30%, when in fact the, the figure is less than 0.1% of the Labour Party have been uh, sanctioned for this. And so the depiction of uh, Corbyn has been relentlessly negative, and it is precisely because Corbyn uh, poses such a threat to the establishment, and not least to the media. Uh, he has certainly talked a lot about, if not 
actively proposed huge media reform in the UK. If you don't know, the, the media in the UK is controlled very much by just a handful of people. Rupert Murdoch has a number of national publications, plus uh, TV and radio. Uh, there are a few other oligarchs like the Barclay Brothers or Alexander Lebedev who control so much of the media. And these billionaires do not want to see uh, a socialist elected into 10 Downing Street because that would be a direct threat to their power and their wealth. Mm. Um, I I met Rupert Murdoch once. I'll tell you that story uh, another time. Uh, the um, the some of the Corbyn manifesto points I saw just over the weekend is something to do with any publicly listed company that doesn't is doesn't have a fairly bold climate change uh, action plan in place will be delisted from the exchange. And every publicly listed company, I think, had to start giving shares to all of its employees up to around about 10% of their shares on issue. They said, they said, right, if I got that right, I don't have notes in front of me. I'm just doing that from memory. You see those? Well, I don't know if it's 10% or if it's higher, but that is uh, that is correct, yes. <clears throat> I mean, I saw those. I was like, shit, that's... That's vision, man. I mean, he's never going to get elected with a vision like that, but that's vision. Like, I'm always criticising politicians in Australia in particular for having no vision. We, we don't have any visionary politicians on any side of the spectrum here. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I, have to, I have to give him credit for that. That's, that's bold stuff. That's big steps. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I'm not sure if I would agree with you if when you're saying he's never going to get elected, even though the polls are showing that he's behind right now. Uh, the last time we had uh, an election, Labour were on 24% and the Conservatives were on 48%. So they were twice, they had twice the, uh, the vote share as, uh, as Labour did, according to the polls. And when it came to actually the voting day, the public had read the manifesto and uh, the Conservatives' enormous majority was reduced to zero, and they are now uh, governing as a minority party, as Labour uh, produced its uh, biggest surge since at least 1945. So Corbyn is enormously mm. popular with the rank-and-file Labour, and there is a genuine possibility that he could, at very least, form a, a coalition government with the Scottish National Party, who are very strong in Scotland and have many seats there. The problem is, is that <clears throat> Labour's uh, members of parliament, the establishment uh, uh, figures, generally most of them had uh, cut their teeth and moved up the party during the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown years, where the difference between Labour and the Conservatives was, uh, well, you know, you could write it on a, on a postage stamp. Mm. Um, so we have a situation where most of the uh, establishment and the bureaucracy of the Labour Party absolutely hate Jeremy Corbyn and have been trying for years to overthrow him time after time after time. And he's been saved only by his enormous popularity with the membership. And so if Corbyn does become prime minister, he's obviously going to face a huge backlash from the media and from every point of the establishment, whether that's uh, the military, intelligence, business, the clergy, whatever. But he's also going to find some of the most committed uh, attacks coming from the uh, high-ranking members of his own party. 
if he pulls a Clement Attlee, he could end up in <clears throat> Belmarsh with Julian Assange and maybe Prince Andrew, the way things are going. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, listen, Alan, um, I've taken up a lot of your time uh, this morning. I appreciate it. Terrific to chat with you. Um, finally, I'll, I'll give everybody a bit of a plug. So they can find you on Twitter at Alan R. McLeod, M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Are you related to the uh, There Can Be Only One McLeods or is that a different branch of the McLeod family? Uh, I think that's not me. I mean, we're all related uh, if you go back far enough, but uh, yeah, that's not uh, not close to me, no. No, Highlander, Sean Connery, that wasn't you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my family, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we've been uh, displaced for quite a long time. Right. And people can find you on, uh, well, all over the place, uh, fair.org, commondreams.org, uh, anywhere else they should look. Mint Press, you said as well? Yeah, find me. I think uh, Twitter is the best place to follow me. Uh, or if you want to read some of my writing, go to mintpressnews.com or fairness and accuracy in reporting. Yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you, the, the listeners, one of the things I love about Alan's reporting is he analyzes the media. Uh, for, for Australians, um, it's a bit like Media Watch. We've got a show on the ABC here called Media Watch runs once a week where they basically analyse the headlines and the coverage of the media in different areas and just show the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy in the media itself. And it's one of the things I like about your reporting is you sort of uh, peel away the layers of the propaganda in the mainstream media. It makes it easy for me to get my head around some of the games that are being played and give me places where I can go and drill down. And, and you make my life a lot easier, Alan McLeod. So for that, I thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks. That's exactly what I'm trying to be doing. So yeah, thanks for saying that, Cameron. And uh, yeah, I'll come on anytime. It's great to speak to you. Yeah, great. Well, I'd love to have you back on. I'm sure we're going to have plenty to talk about. Great. Okay. See you later. All right. Thanks, mate. Bullshit. 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 Bullsh